You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis 38 is where we're going to be. So you're going to need your Bible open and on your lap and looking at it. And let me just say this one more time. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath um, every three or four seats. And uh, I think it would really serve you to have one in front of you. So if, if you have stumbled in on us today, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, you have stumbled in on us um, in, kind of in part three of a set of sermons called Joseph and Jesus, where we are looking at these chapters at the end of Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. And today we happen to find ourselves in Genesis chapter 38. And let me just prepare you. It's a pretty wild chapter. Um, I love what one pastor said. He said, uh, Nobody has ever done a pageant or a play or a coloring sheet on this chapter of your Bible. And that's true. I'll guarantee you, your kids have never colored in the pages of Genesis chapter 38. It was funny reading a few commentaries this week on this chapter. Uh, one commentary said, if you, you know, if you're preaching through the life of Joseph, if you, you've kind of got Genesis 37 through 50 in your crosshairs, Genesis 38 might be a chapter you might consider skipping. It might be a chapter you would consider looking over, but we're not going to look over it. We're, we're going to deal with it. And it's a chapter full of some wild things. Let me just preface that again. It's got all of that in there. God strikes some people dead. It's X-rated in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and it seems to be kind of a, a, a turn from where the story has been in Genesis. In Genesis 37, Joseph goes down to Egypt. In Genesis 39, it picks up with Joseph in Egypt. And yet we've got these 30 verses in between those two things happening. So it seems to take kind of a turn in in the story when you get to Genesis 38. But but here's what I want to try to throw out today. That Genesis 38 is intended by God to be in the Bible. And so in light of that, we want to preach it. In light of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that God has breathed out all of Scripture, including Genesis 38. And all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped. Like if we believe that, then Genesis 38 also has to be a part of that, right? And so we want to make sure that we're faithful to preach through the the whole counsel of God's Word. And here's the truth. Genesis 38 is intended to be in the Bible, and it has a reason for being in the Bible. And that's what I want to try to bring out for you today. So if I'm going to try to summarize in in a couple of quick statements what Genesis 38 is about, I would say it like this. The reason Genesis 38 is in in the Bible, the reason God included it, and, and listen, aren't we thankful that God includes the ups and the downs of people's lives in the Bible? We get to see it all the, the trash and the good stuff of people's lives. And the reason this, this, this chapter is in the Bible is because it clarifies some things for us about the character of God. This chapter is about to clarify some things for us about the character of God. It's about to recalibrate us around the God that is revealed in the Bible, that God. So we're about to see some clarifying things about his character. Now, okay, Here's my inks for this morning. In light of that being the purpose of this chapter, this morning is very important for you and it's very important for me because we all need to be constantly and continuously, we all need to be constantly and continuously recalibrated around who the Bible says God is. We all need that. We all need to see with clarity who God is, the God that is revealed in the scriptures. And 
A.W. Tozer, picking up on the importance of us seeing God clearly, he said this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I've, I repeat this quote all the time because I want it to be in, in, in part in kind of our culture here. But, but he says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now sit and simmer on that for a second. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's saying that, that our thought about God, like when we say the word God, what springs into your mind instantly after that word, that is the most important thing about you because it sets the direction of your life. It sets the trajectory of your life. It determines everything else about your life. It determines how you see your life, what your life is for. The most important thing about you is what you think of when you hear that word God. Now, here is the problem a lot of us have, all of us have, is that we are all very prone to create a God in our mind that fits with our plans and our purposes in the world. Do you know that about yourself, that you are prone to do that? Like chances are right now when you think of the word God, chances are there are many parts and many pieces about God that you have just totally made up. It's just your God that you've created. It's not the God that's revealed in the Bible. It's just the God that you, you think is, is, is out there. Right? So we're all very prone to creating a God in our mind that is not in alignment with the revealed God of the Scriptures. And so mornings like this are very important for us to help us see some of those parts and pieces of God that we've just made up that aren't in line with the scriptures. It's important for us to have mornings like this that we have clarified for us who this God is that we worship. If, if it really is the most important thing about us, what we think of when we hear the word God, then mornings like this could not be more important for you so that you see with clarity the character of God. So in light of that, here's what I want to do today. I want to give you three things this passage teaches us about God. Three things that this passage shows us about who God is. Three things that this passage clarifies as it concerns the character of God. So we're going after three things. Here's the first one. Number one is this chapter clarifies for us the holiness of God. The holiness or the justice of God. So just start reading down here with me. Uh, verse 1. Here's what happens in the first five verses of Genesis uh, chapter 38. Is Judah goes down to Canaan. More on this escapade later. But he goes down to Canaan. And while there he, he marries and has three sons. And then you pick it up in verse 6 and here's what we see. And Judah took a wife for his firstborn Ur. And his name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, listen to this statement, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Keeps going. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring by her. Okay, so let me try to clue you in on what's happening in verse 8. In this culture... A husband and children were currency. A husband and children were currency in the culture. In other words, if you didn't have a husband, and specifically if your husband died and you did not have children, you were in a very dangerous place as a woman. Chances are no man was going to marry you. 
And, and with children and, and men being currency in the culture, a husband being currency in the culture, you were probably destined for an impoverished future. It was a terrible existence in this sort of a situation that Tamar finds herself in. And so what you see happening in verse 8 is a provision by God for the widow, for the helpless, for the marginalized, for those who need help. It's a provision by God. So you can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's called Levite marriage, where God in his grace makes sure that, that when a husband dies, that the husband's brother would marry the, the deceased brother's wife, take her into to his family and make sure that she has descendants, make sure she has babies and taken care of. So, so that's what you have happening in, in verse 8. This is a provision by God for a widow. This is a provision by God for a person that apart from something like this happening, is probably destitute and probably going to live the rest of her days in poverty. So this is a provision of God that you see happening in verse 8. But then you get to verse 9 and here's what we find. Onan's not up for that. That's a no-go for Onan. He, he's not going to bring her in and make sure she has descendants. And let me clarify why it is that Onan doesn't want to do his duty here. The reason he doesn't want to do his duty is because he's selfish. That's why. So if he has a baby, if Tamar has a baby, here's what this means for Onan. Tamar with the baby means that, that the inheritance that Judah will give his sons is going to be split three ways. Between Onan, Sheila, and now this newborn kid, Tamar's baby. If Tamar does not have a baby, it's only split two ways between Onan and Sheila. So the motive in Onan is, I, I don't want the inheritance split three ways. I, I just want it split two ways. I don't want another person in the picture. So, so here's what you have happening in verse 9. He is selfish. Rather than considering the plight and the future of Tamar, all he can think about is himself. Rather than considering the welfare of Tamar, all he can think about is his own personal welfare. That's what's happening in verse 9. Then you get to verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he, being the Lord, put him to death also. Okay, let me read this one more time. He did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God straight up kills the guy. I mean, are you serious? I mean, you're saying that, that you, you, you mean people sin, God looks at them as wicked, and he straight up kills them? I mean, that, that's, what, that's what we're saying here? That God would look at somebody and say, you're wicked, I'm holy, so you're dead. And listen, I'm not saying that. The Bible's saying that. Are, are we seeing this? This is what the Bible is saying. That, uh, we have no idea why uh, or how they were killed. And we don't know if it was a heart attack, if it was cancer. We don't know if God, God called a bear down to eat them. That happened in another place in the scriptures. We don't know how it happened, but we know from this text why it happened. It happened because the Lord was ready to put them to death. That's why. Because the Lord looked at them in their wickedness and said, no more, you're dead. Now, that kind of offends some of our just sensibilities, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't exactly fit into the box that normally we kind of put God into. Now, here's what I think some of us would say in this moment. Is, well, isn't that like just kind of a God of the Old Testament? I mean, isn't it that God, not like the New Testament God? And the answer to that is no. That the same God that is alive today is the same God that was alive in the New Testament is the exact same God of the Old Testament. James 1.17 is going to be real clear with it. God doesn't change. It's the same God in the Old Testament as we have living right now. 
And it is true, God does put people to death in the Old Testament. Just read uh, Genesis chapter 6. He wipes out the entire earth other than the family of Noah in Genesis 6. Read uh, Genesis 18. He wipes out an entire city, kills them all because of their wickedness. And then you get passages like this in Genesis 38. So he does put, put people to death in the Old Testament, but it's not just an Old Testament thing. He also puts, to pe- puts people to death in the New Testament. How about Acts chapter 5? You remember the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They come in and lie, and what does God do? Kills them both immediately. Do you remember the uh, story of Herod in Acts chapter 12? Let, let me read this scenario for you, this, this scene for you. Herod has just kind of given a speech, and people are enthralled by Herod, and they say this. This will be up on the screen for you. And the people were shouting, This is the voice of God, not of a man. In verse 23, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, struck him down, because he did not give the uh, glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He just, he's wicked, and God says, No more, you're dead. I mean, that is a little bit of a jolt to the system. It's a jolt to my system. It's probably a jolt to your system. I mean, there are some of my sensibilities when I read that that is a little bit shocked by what I see happening in texts like this. Like the truth is, is that these texts are supposed to trouble you. They're meant to trouble you. And and here's why they're meant to trouble you. They're meant to give you a picture of the justice and the holiness of God. That's what they're meant to do for you. They're meant to trouble you. They're meant to awaken you to this is who God is. Like he's actually holy. He's actually offended by sin. He doesn't like sin. He's angered over sin. He's furious about sin. His wrath is pent up over sin. It's trying to show us that picture of who the Bible reveals God as. That this is the God of the Bible. So so let me just do a quick survey of some biblical text on this. Do you remember in Genesis 2 and 3 when when God comes to Adam and Eve and he commands them, don't eat of this particular tree, this one tree, don't eat of that. This is forbidden fruit, don't eat it. And do you remember what he says at the end of that? If you do what? You will surely die. Do you remember that? See, that, that is a picture of the justice of God. And listen, that is not just an Old Testament reality. Read some Romans 6, specifically verse 23, and here's what we're gonna find. The wages of sin is what? Death, right? That this is throughout the Bible, that the wages of our sin is death. Like this is God's economy. I'm holy and just. And if you sin and rebel against me, you, you try to usurp my reign and rule in your life, here's what that accrues to your account, the death penalty. See, this is a picture of the justice of God. This is who God is in the Bible. And listen, this is like one of those moments that we all need to make sure that the God that we have in our mind, the God we think of, is actually in line with the Bible. And see, I think sometimes a lot of the questions we ask show that it's not in alignment with the Bible. So when we ask a question like, how could God kill a person like Ur and Onan? You know how God can do that? It's real easy. His justice demands it. That's why. We ask questions like this. How, does, how can God not just save everyone? See, it's, it's showing us that, that those questions are rooted in, in the, a wrong view of God. It's interesting. The Bible is not overly concerned with how can God, how is God not going to save everyone? That is not the overriding concern of the Bible. The overriding concern of the Bible is how in the world is God going to save anyone? That's the overriding concern. 
So I just want to make sure that when we think about God, that we are seeing an accurate picture that God is a just judge. He is holy. He cannot coexist with sin. He is serious about sin. See, I think it's just interesting that for most of us, if we're just really honest, we're more shocked when God shows justice than when God shows mercy and grace. We're more shocked by that. See, and, that, and we'll kind of play that card when we think of the Old Testament. But listen, the Old Testament is not a record, a, not a history of a harsh God. It's not that. The Old Testament is a history of a very gracious and kind God to a very stiff-necked and rebellious people. You know what Genesis 2 and 3 show us? When God says, if you eat of the forbidden fruit, in that day you will surely die. And what does God do in Genesis 3? Does he kill Adam and Eve instantly? No, he lets them live. And you know what Genesis 3 shows us? That everything above us being like instantly killed for our sin is actually grace. That's what it shows us. See, when you get that lens, it's not the record of a harsh God. It's the record of a kind God who is so gracious, extends such patience to people who oftentimes hate him and forget him. See, that, that's what the Old Testament is. It's a record of a God who is very kind. But, but do you know why it is that passages like this tend to kind of shock us and jolt us? Do you know why that is? For most of us in the room, like right now, we're so troubled by God just killing a person. It's because grace has ceased to be amazing to us. That, that we act as if God owes us grace when God owes us nothing but justice. Do you hear that? God doesn't owe you grace. If he did, it wouldn't be grace. The only thing God owes you and me and Ur and Onan is justice. And this is just one of those texts that recalibrate our heart to the fact that God is actually just, demanding a payment for sin. So let me just press this down and apply this in this room This passage is supposed to trouble us enough to where we will actually take God seriously. And can I just be straight with us in this room? There's a lot of us who are taking God really lightly. And, and this passage is trying to show you that God is not to be taken lightly. He's not. He's to be taken very, very seriously. This is a passage that's meant to remind us that like your sin before God is really, 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 really serious before God. Like serious enough where periodically you see him just strike people down for it. That this is how serious God is about sin. This is how serious we should be about sin. This passage is supposed to remind us, it's supposed to make us a little bit uncomfortable. It's, a, it's supposed to, to, to put a little bit of urgency inside of us that it would be prudent for us to actually get right with God like ASAP. It's supposed to put, put that sort of urgency in you and in me. That this is God. He is just. And we need to make sure that we are right with God before we experience his justice. See, here's the truth for every person on the planet. You, me, all of us. We are all either going to get one of two things from God. We're either going to get justice, just like Ur and Onan, or we're going to get Jesus, who took our, the justice of God for us and in our place. But that is the only two options for all of us in the room. It's justice or it is Jesus. 
I mean, can, can I just stop and just press this down? I mean, if, if there has never been a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith and taken Jesus, then your future has justice written all over it. Your future is just like Onan's. It's just like Ur's. And I don't want you to have that future. Now, I'm pleading with you, begging with you, take Jesus. He has willingly and graciously absorbed the justice of God on your behalf on the cross. You don't have to have the justice of God. You can get the grace of God, but it only comes in you taking Jesus. See, this passage is supposed to wake us up to this reality about God, that God is just, that he is holy, that he has to be reckoned with by every person in the room. So the first thing we see in this, in this chapter is the holiness of God, but that's not all we see. We also see a picture of the faithfulness of God, of the faithfulness of God. Okay, so Genesis, I want you to think about Genesis 38 and really just this whole Genesis 37 through 50, this whole set of chapters from a 30,000 foot level. And I've tried to remind you of this over the past couple of weeks, but I want to do it again today. Genesis 37 through 50, one of the overarching themes that we are supposed to see is the faithfulness of God. That's one of the overarching themes that we're supposed to see that in Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, that God has made a promise that there's going to be one come from a woman who's going to crush the head of Satan. Genesis 12 clarifies that promise. That promise is going to come through Abraham. Later on, we see it clarified again. that It's going to come through um, Isaac, Abraham's son. And then we see it clarified again. that It's going to come through Jacob, one of Isaac's son. So we, we continually see this promise clarified. In Genesis 37 through 50, on an overarching level, it is trying to help us see God's faithfulness. Because there is a famine coming to the land that is threatening Judah and his, or Jacob and his family. This famine is threatening to take out everyone in Jacob's family. And God, in his mercy, sends Joseph ahead of Jacob and his family, sends Joseph ahead to Egypt, so he can save and provide food for the entire family. See, it's supposed to help us see that God is actually faithful to do what God said he would do. He, it's going to come through Jacob, and God is going to spare Jacob's family from a famine. How is he going to do that? Through his man Joseph, who he sends to Egypt. But now when you zero in on chapter 38, you've got, we're dealing with Judah. So we're no longer kind of in the Joseph narrative now. We're in the Judah narrative. And when you zero in on Genesis 38... If you were a Jewish person reading this story years after it was written here, you would instantly start to connect, I am a Jew. Like, I call myself a Jew because of Judah. Like, in other words, we know that the promise is not just coming through Jacob now, it's coming through Judah. That, that Judah is the line that is going to come the Messiah, that's going to come the Redeemer and the Rescuer. That Judah and his family is where the promise is going to rest. But when you get to, to Genesis chapter uh, 38, specifically verse 12, here is the context that we have, the crisis that we have. Judah has three sons. Firstborn Ur is dead, no children. Second son, Onan, is dead without any children. Shelah, his third son, is pledged to Tamar, betrothed to Tamar. But he has no intention of ever giving Shelah to Tamar. And so here's the problem of Genesis 38. When Judah dies and Shelah die, so does the promise of God die. That's the, that's the issue. This is the overarching problem of the chapter. This led one commentator to say this about Genesis 38. He said that the central problem of Genesis 38 is childlessness. 
That's the central problem, is will God come through on his promise? Is God trustworthy? Can God actually be, tr- be trusted to do everything that God has said he would do? And here's what Genesis 38 is showing us. As God arranges and orchestrates and ordains all of these events in Genesis 38, as he uses the sin of, of Judah, the sin of, of Onan, the sin of Ur, he uses all these ups and downs, the successes and the failures. He's using all of these things in Genesis chapter 38 to bring about descendants for Judah. That's what he's doing here. He's arranging all of these things, orchestrating all of these things to show you and I that God is actually faithful to do what he said he would do. That if it's coming through Judah, that God will make a way for Judah to have descendants. That's the overarching theme of this chapter, that God is faithful and it's proven here. That you can trust God because God is actually trustworthy, proven in Genesis chapter 38. So I want to take a second just to allow the Spirit of God just to remind us of this this morning. See, when when the people of Israel would have looked back on Genesis 38, here is one of the central things they would see. God is faithful. We can trust God because God is trustworthy. And when you and I read Genesis chapter 38, here is one of the central things we are meant to see. That God is faithful. You can trust God because God is actually trustworthy. That, maybe I can say it this way, that every promise that God, if you're a son or daughter of God, you're in the family of God, every promise that he has made to you in Jesus, he promises that you can cash. He promises you can do it. Every promise that he has made to you, he is saying in Genesis 38, it's going to come true. I will be faithful to it. You can trust me because I'm trustworthy. So to the person in the room this morning, you find yourself just very anxious, worried about how things are going to turn out, how this part of life's going to turn out, how that thing's going to come out. Can can, can I just tell you, if, if you're that anxious person this morning, that worried person this morning, can I just remind you that God is great? That God is great. That God is actually sovereign and all-powerful. And if you're a son or daughter of God, that sovereign, all-powerful God is also your father. Can I remind you of that this morning? That he's a good father, and all-powerful father for you? And see, when we start to believe that, do you, do you know what it does? It starts to dispel worry and anxiety in our life. It starts to dispel that. When we start to really see God as Father, as all-powerful Father, it starts to dispel all the worry that we would have. See, when you boil it down beyond all and below all the behavioral problems we have, all the sin that kind of seeps its way out of our life, when you get down under the surface of all of our behavioral sin, do you know what that's rooted in? Just not believing that God is faithful. It's rooted in not believing that God is trustworthy. Every one of your behavioral sins is rooted in unbelief in God. This is why one of the reformers used to say that, listen, as a Christian, we're all practical atheists until we die. We're all partly unbelievers until we die. Like there's things that we would mentally say yes to about God that on Monday morning when we wake up, we say no to. That God is not that. That God is, right now it's so easy to affirm that God is great and he is a good father to you. He he is that to you. But on Monday morning when life is falling apart, it's a whole other thing to believe that, isn't it? 
So can I remind you in this moment when Monday morning hits, that God is faithful. He's a great, God is great, and he is also a great father for you because of Jesus. To the man in the room that is addicted to pornography right now, can, can I just remind you that God is good? And what God is good means is that God alone promises to satisfy the deepest aches of your heart. To quench the deepest thirst, thirst of your heart. You know that pornography also has a competing promise to that? But pornography says this, no, God won't do that. I, I alone can do that. I alone can, can satisfy your heart. But, but here's the, the problem. Is pornography makes a promise that it, it can't cash. It can't do it. God is the one that makes the promise that says, I alone can satisfy you. This is Psalm 1611. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is John 4. That I alone can like quench your thirst. Every other thing you try to drink, every other well you go to, you're going to stay thirsty. I alone can quench that thirst in your soul. Pornography can't do it. I mean, we're hearing that. Pornography cannot quench that. Only God can. Can, can, can I remind you that God is good? And that he'll, he'll be faithful to be good for you, satisfying to you? That, that like Jesus actually is enough for you? Can I remind the workaholics in the room that you're trying to, to find your approval and your identity and how well you perform at work? Can, can I just remind you that, that in Jesus, God has already given you the approval that you long for? Can I remind you of that? That you don't have to gain it at work? Can I remind the moms in the room that, that your identity is wrapped up in your kids and their behavior and how well they turn out? That, that really you, you view parenting as a competitive sport? And you know why that is? Because your, your identity is wrapped up in that. Your approval, what, what you're looking to, to, to make you okay with you is wrapped up in your kids. Your kids were never meant to bear that burden. See, it's God coming beside you and saying, listen, your kids can't do that for you. Only I can do that for you. And I have in Jesus, I have pronounced over you all the approval your soul aches for. Can I remind some of us in the room that are totally terrified of people? We are living for the verdict of other people. The verdict of our mother, of our father, of our kids, of our co-workers. We live for the verdict of others. The fear of man grips our life, motivates our life. It makes us not want to share. It makes, us, it makes us hide things. It makes us conceal things. Those that are just so terrified of what people think about them. Can, can I just remind you that God is glorious? And in light of that, you don't have to fear man. Can I just remind you that God is faithful to you? That, that you can trust God because God is trustworthy? And can you just allow the Spirit of God to press that down over you today? That Genesis 38 is just trying to give you proof that you can trust God. That, that God is actually big enough to be everything you need in life. Everything. God's big enough for that. So Genesis 38 is showing us a picture of the faithfulness of God. And, and here's the last one. Genesis 38 shows us a picture of the amazing grace of God. If I'm talking, Genesis 38 is showing us a picture and a portrait of unbelievable grace. 
So let's start with Judah, just so we get kind of the backdrop of the grace of God in this chapter. So let's start with the portrait of Judah. When we are introduced to Judah in Genesis chapter 37, he's not a good man. Are we, are we all aware of that? In Genesis 37, Judah's not good. So in Genesis 37, here's what we have, um, here's what we see about Judah. When Joseph approaches his brothers in, in Dothan, Judah is there and he is participating in and he is ready to join in the premeditated murderous plot to kill their brother Joseph. He's ready to go on that. He participates in them throwing them in, throwing Joseph in, in the pit. He, he is right in with all of that. Joseph is in the pit. They're ready to leave him for dead. And, and Judah is the one that's got the great idea of why would we kill our brother when we can make a profit off of our brother? Judah is the one that ringleads them selling Joseph into slavery. That's Judah right? Now, now, at the end of all that, Judah and his brothers are the ones that, that deceive their father. R rather than owning up to their sin, they dip Joseph's coat in blood and, and stage his death as by animal, not by them, right? So this is Judah in Genesis 37. Then you get to Genesis 38, and it goes downhill in a hurry. Genesis 37, Judah looked pretty good. Genesis 38, Judah, that Judah is absolutely despicable. Okay, so let me just kind of walk through some of Judah's issues in, in Genesis 37. First of all, Judah is a failure as a covenant keeper with God. He is a failure as a covenant keeper. So God has come to, to this family and made a covenant with this family that it's through you that I'm going to bless all, the rest of the world. And, and Judah is ready to walk out on that covenant. And we see it in a, in a progression in this chapter. In verse 1, here's what happens. It says this, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers. Here's the first thing we see as him failing as a covenant keeper, that he walks away from his family. He walks away from the family of promise. He, he walks away from the one family that God has made his promise to, and he goes to Canaan. So he, he's on his way to a pagan people, people who don't know God, who don't love God. And can I just tell you this, um, and let this just serve as a warning for you. I think what you see happening in Genesis 38 with, with Judah is what you see happening in a lot of lives. That, that before we step off the cliff of immorality and just disregard for God, here's typically the first step in that progression, is that we walk away from the family of God, the people of God. Just like Judah did, we walk away from the people of God. So, so in our context, that would be away from the church. So it's just, it just not quite as important. We're not living in good community with other people. We're kind of doing our own thing. We'll go when it's convenient, but we're just kind of doing our own thing. So we walk away from the people of God. And then it gets worse for, for Judah. He not only uh, separates himself from the people of God, but he forms ungodly relationships, ungodly friendships. Look at what happens at the end of verse 1. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brother, so he's left the people of God, and then he does this, and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. I love that name. You know that guy's going to be crazy. Your name's Hurrah, and it's on. So he goes to Canaan, and here's the first thing he does. He gets deep friendships with the pagan people. Okay, now let's just be clear here. Judah did not go to Canaan as a missionary. He didn't. He went to Canaan to join in on the revolt against God. That's what he went to Canaan for. To find him some people who he could join in this rebellion with. That's why he's in Canaan. And he now turns aside to Hurrah and he develops deep friendships with Hurrah. Let this be a warning to us in the room. Let, let this be a warning. 
that we have to be very careful who we allow on our inner circle in our life. Maybe I could say it this way. The most influential people in your life are the ones that when life happens to you, you say this to them. Here's what happened. What do you think? Those people are the most influential in your life. And we are all in great need of having people, unlike Judah here, of having people that when we ask those questions to, love us and love Jesus and point us to Jesus in that moment. We are all in desperate need of that. You need that. I need that. We all need that. We have to be very careful about who that inner circle is, that our inner circle are people who point us to Jesus and not away from Jesus. Let me just ask you the question. Who are your, who's your inner circle? Who, are, who is that group of people that when life happens, you throw life out to them and say, what do you think? And if those people do not love Jesus and love you and seek to point you to Jesus, you are in a very dangerous situation. Do you know that? This is why Proverbs thirteen twenty says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools suffers harm. And your family suffer harms when you're a companion with fools. Your friends suffer harm when you're a companion of fools because they're the ones that have to pick up the pieces of your foolishness. A companion of fools suffers harm. Just allow that to sit for a second in the room. I mean, if you've got an inner circle that is not Jesus-loving people who point you to Jesus, you need to prioritize that. That is hugely and massively important for you if you want to avoid some of what's happening to Judah here. And listen to Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. Listen to him describe the importance of friendships and the faith family, living in good community, the importance of that in our life. He says it this way, be on the screen. Those serious about communing with, with Christ will be diligent to share in fellowship with other Christians. In more than a decade of pastoral ministry, I've never met a Christian who was healthier, more mature, and more active in ministry by being apart from the church. But I have found the opposite to be invariably true. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. And the less involved you are, the more disconnected those, those following you will be. Now let that soak in as if you're a parent in the room. That the, more, that the less involved you are, the more disconnected those following you, your descendants will be. The man who attempts Christianity without the church, so I'll, I'll take Jesus, just not Jesus' family. Okay, th those people who attempt Christianity without the, ch the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. Now let's let that sober you for a second. That there's a lot riding on this, not just for you, but for the people who come after you. Not just for your spiritual health, but for the spiritual health of those who come after you. So if your life is not entwined with the local church, it doesn't have to be this one. But if, if it's not this one, it needs to be somewhere out there, like some church. If it's not intertwined, just let this be a warning for you. That your first step away from the people of God is normally your first step towards sin in your life. That when, when you are surround yourself by people who do not point you to Jesus in the midst of your life, you are plowing the ground for sin to grow in your life. And it happened for Judah just that way. 
So he separates himself from the people of God. He chooses ungodly friendship. And then you see him marry a Canaanite. Do you see that in verse 2, 3, 4 here? That, that he goes down to Canaan and he marries, finds a Canaanite wife, and he marries her. And it's interesting that the text doesn't even give her name. She's just the daughter of Shua. That's all we know her by. And that's led commentators to believe that this relationship was much less about love and much more about lust. It wasn't about how he could serve a wife. It was about what he could take from a wife. And when you read uh, Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, you'll see that Judah knew what he was doing. He knew that this was prohibited by God, that God didn't want him to marry a Canaanite. In Genesis uh, chapter 24, Abraham is very diligent to make sure that when they select a wife for their son Isaac, that it wasn't a Canaanite wife who would seduce him into worshiping other gods. That he went back to the people of God to find a wife for, for his son. And in Genesis chapter 34, Judah knows with clarity in Genesis chapter 34, it it says that he is not, they're not supposed to marry Canaanite women. That they're not supposed to marry women that would seduce them to worship other gods. He knows that. But here's what we see in Genesis 38. He doesn't care about that. He is ready to walk out on all of his commitments. He is ready to walk out on his covenant keeping with God. What we have happening in Genesis 38 with Judah is a son of the covenant ready to walk out on his covenant keeping. That's Judah in Genesis 38. But it's even worse than that. He not only fails as a son of the covenant, he's a failure as a father and a father-in-law. It's it's really clear when you start reading in, in verse six and beyond that Ur and Onan are both wicked people. And it's pretty clear to see that when you read it, that that uh, Judah is way too passive with them. Rather than rebuking them in their sin and warning them in their sin and pleading with them to repent of their sin, he excuses their sin. And you see that play out when he sends Tamar back. You know what his motive was? He actually thought she was the reason that they died, not their wickedness. See, he's just a passive dad. He's just going to excuse all of their wickedness, all of their sin, scrape it under the rug as if it doesn't exist. But not only is he a failure as a father, he's a failure as a father-in-law. Judah is the man who is responsible for Tamar. He is the one charged by God to make sure she is protected as a widow, to make sure she is provided for. But you get to verse 11 and here's what Judah does. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. In other words, leave here and go there. I don't want you anymore. Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his other brothers. He has no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar. And it finishes, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. See, rather than protecting Tamar, a widow, he marginalizes and pushes her away. This is Judah, the one commissioned to make sure she is provided and protected for, forsaking his responsibility as a father-in-law to her. So he's a failure as a father and a father-in-law. And maybe most importantly in this chapter, he's a failure as a widower. He's a failure as a widower. So Judah has lost his wife. She dies. Tamar hears about this, and she instantly kind of sets in motion a plan. And and here's the plan. Look at verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her her widow's garments and covered herself with, with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage." So she comes up with a plan that's going to seduce him. Okay, now I want you to think about this in terms of Judah. If you're Tamar, 
you would not think about a plan where you pose as a prostitute to Judah unless you were sure that Judah would take the bait. In other words, the fact that Tamar came up with this plan is evidence that Judah is a perverted man. That he's an immoral man. That that he is that guy. That he is not a good guy. He is a perverted guy. So for you to come up with a plan like that, not only would you have to, people have to know about it, but it would have to be widespread people. Like Tamar would have to know that this, is, this plan's going to work, that he's surely going to take that bait. So Judah here, there is great evidence that he is a perverted, immoral man. And we keep going here. Is he going to take the bait? Well, sure enough, he does. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now, let me just pause there over that for a second. Let this be a warning to us all. How blinding we can be in the, how blinded we can be in the midst of our sin. Isn't it amazing how sin can blind you? Isn't it amazing how lust can blind you? Judah doesn't even recognize this as his daughter-in-law. That's how blinded he was by lust. There's been a few moments where I've sat across the table from married folk, and one of them is in the midst of an affair, and everyone around him or her is pleading for her to see what this is costing her the damage and just what all this is destroying. And it is amazing to me how blinded people are in that moment because it makes perfect sense why it is worth sacrificing everything for this affair. Unbelievable how blinded we can be by our sin. Let that be a warning to you to make sure you're putting sin to death before it gets to that point. So he's blinded by his sin and we go on. It says that she said, what will you give me? that you may come into me. In verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, then we'll be on. Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. And, and by the way, the, the signet, the cord, and the staff, that would be akin to giving somebody your wallet, your driver's license, and your credit card. It would be that sort of an identifying mark that, that he has just given. And so, uh, and then it goes on. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and and taking off her her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah has bit the bait. Now it's just a matter of what happens. Like what is going to happen now that this has gone on? And in verse 24, we find out. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, listen to this, bring her out and let her be burned. It's really two main words in the Hebrew, bring her and burn her. I mean, is this not just like naked brutality? I mean, this is like self-righteousness on display. This is a coldness of heart, a hardness of heart, self-righteous pride that we see oozing out of Judah. I mean, I read this and I I, I just, I I had this thought of, are you serious? Can this be happening? He's the reason that she's pregnant. It's his immorality that's the problem here, not hers. It's just blatant self-righteousness in our man Judah. 
This is who Judah is. In Genesis 37 and 38, we have a view of Judah that is absolutely despicable. That's Judah. But that's not all we have in Genesis 38. We have also a portrait of the amazing, amazing, amazing grace of God. See, if if I'm God, I'm ready to strike Judah dead as well, aren't you? I mean, if if I'm calling the shots, somebody's dying in that moment and it's not Tamar. So, so, but watch how the story plays out. As she was being, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. This is an amazing picture of grace because rather than killing Judah, God meets Judah in his sin. Are you seeing that? Rather than just straight up killing Judah like he did Ur and Onan, he meets Judah in the midst of his sin with amazing grace. See, what's on display in Genesis 38 is grace from God, amazing grace from God. Rather than killing Judah, God arranges and ordains and orchestrates the event of Genesis 38 to redeem Judah. Are we seeing that? Rather than killing him, he's redeeming him. Rather than slaying Judah, God not only spares Judah, but shows his commitment to saving Judah. See, what we have happening in Genesis 38 is God doing whatever it takes to rescue Judah. Whatever it takes. So God ordains and orchestrates all the events of Genesis 38. He plans all the events of Genesis 38 to get us to a point in Genesis 38 where the pain of public humiliation lands on Judah. Where he is about to self-righteously kill this lady because she's immoral. And everyone finds out that she's immoral because of his immorality. That God arranges all of that in his grace to redeem and to save and to break through the hardness of Judah's heart. See, Genesis 38 is putting on display for us that we have a God that looks at his sons and daughters and has relentless pursuit of them. That in his grace, he doesn't stop. That in his grace, he he never says enough. That in his grace, he never gives up. That he is relentless in his pursuit. And that's amazing grace, isn't it? Genesis 38 is supposed to remind you and I that God is committed to our continual rescue. He's committed to it. That his sons and daughters, that God is absolutely 100% committed to your salvation, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the present power of sin in your life. And it's ironic that this God meeting Judah in his sin with grace really started the transformation in Judah. If you go on to Judah or to Genesis chapter 43 and 44, you see a different Judah play out. The Judah in Genesis 44 is willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of his young favored brother, Benjamin. You see a completely different Judah then. This was the start of the transformation of Judah, God meeting Judah over his sin. And can I just just allow that to sit in this room for just a second? 
that God is relentless in his pursuit of his sons and daughters? Some of you in the room right now, you know that you're as despicable as Judah. And some of us need to realize we're as despicable as Judah. And here is the beautiful reality of Genesis 38, that God's grace is bigger than our sin. That the God's grace is bigger than Judah's sin. That the God's grace is always bigger than our biggest sins. So, so for those of you who think you have out God, let Genesis 38 remind you that you have not out God. For those of you who think that you're beyond the grace of God, let Genesis 38 remind you that you are not beyond the grace of God. That what we see happening in Genesis chapter 38 is an amazing portrait of the relentless pursuit of God's amazing grace. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading uh, Psalms 130. And in that psalm, there, there is this moment where, where the psalmist cries out, if, if you were to mark my iniquity, oh Lord, who could stand? And can I just tell you, no one could. Judah couldn't and you couldn't. But here is the great news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That is the amazing grace that we have on display as God meets Judah over his sin here. But it's not just God meeting Judah over his sin. We have another picture of grace. It's God using Judah in spite of his sin. Now we see in this, it's not just God meeting Judah over his sin. It's God using Judah in spite of his sin. So let's finish the chapter here. Verse 27 says this. When the time came of her labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he withdrew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his, afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And let me just go back to Perez just for a second. Do, do you know who comes after Perez? Do you, do you know who this guy Perez is? Ruth chapter 4 will help us. It's going to be on the screen for you. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 and 21 will help us see who our man Perez is, the son of Judah is. Ruth 4, 18 says this. Now these are the generations of Perez, our man in, in Genesis 38. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fa uh, fathered Abinadab, and Abinadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salem, and Salem fathered Boaz. You heard of that guy? Boaz from, from Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse. And do you know who who's Jesse's son is? And, and Jesse fathered David. And do you know who happened to come from David? Our man Jesus. Amen. So, so do you see what's happening here? That, that if there's anybody on the planet that should be sidelined from ministry, it is our man Judah who should be sidelined from kingdom work. It should be Judah. But God doesn't sideline Judah. God in his amazing grace still chooses to use Judah to allow him to make a kingdom difference. That Judah, despicable Judah, is the same Judah God uses to give birth to Jesus. Are we seeing that? 
That is what you call amazing grace. Genesis 38 is supposed to show us this, that God can not only take, but he can change and he can use crooked sticks like Judah. And it is supposed to remind us that God can take, that God can change, and that God can use even crooked sticks like you and I. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.